When Jesus' promises come to pass, we recognize his sovereignty and our faith in him is strengthened. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells every Christian. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 16, John 16. Um, if you'll notice, we've been in uh, John since November, and John is unique among the gospel writers in the sense that he really segregates the life and ministry of Christ into two major sections. John chapters 1 through 12 record Jesus' public ministry, ministry to the crowds, and John 13 through 17 really records his private ministry to the disciples. And his private ministry to the disciples takes place during Passion Week, the last seven days of Christ's life on earth. Today, we're, in, we're on Thursday night. As a matter of fact, all of John 13 through 17, phenomenal amount of teaching, takes place within about a six to seven hour period from Passover until the Garden of Gethsemane, probably somewhere late Thursday night. So Jesus is going to the cross tomorrow morning, Friday morning at 9 o'clock, so in only hours he's going to be arrested. He's told the disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going back to the Father, and of course they're very upset about that because they've been dependent completely on him for about the last three years or so he's been on earth. But he says, I'm going to the Father, but the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is going to come and live with you forever. And so there's comfort in that. And he predicts, I will love you forever, but, as we talked about last week, the world system, the world you live in that is controlled and operated and organized by Satan is going to hate you, persecute you, and even try to kill you. So let's pick up the narrative in John 16, verse 1. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that they are offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Here's the principle. When Jesus' promises come to pass, we recognize his sovereignty and our faith in him is strengthened. When Jesus' promises come to pass, we recognize his sovereignty and our faith in him is strengthened. So when Jesus says, I did not say these things, these things refer to the whole last three and a half years. He's been with them now for a little over three years and he's been teaching them and teaching their crowds for that three-year period. And he says, I'm telling you these things in the past, and I'm telling you now so you won't stumble. And that word stumble doesn't mean, it, it can mean trip, but it really is much more intentional. It means someone is setting a trap for you. Someone is setting a trap to catch you off guard and catch you by surprise. Stumble can also mean to go astray, as in apostasy. To go astray, he's talking about to depart from the faith to leave your allegiance to Jesus Christ and to swear allegiance to Satan. The greatest risk that the world poses for you and I today is the same risk the world posed for the disciples, and it's not physical death. The greatest risk you face in the world is not being killed for your faith, because if you are, you go straight to the presence of Jesus. That is not a problem. That's the solution to all the problems, right? The greatest risk you face from persecution is that it will cause you to abandon your faith in Jesus Christ based on fear. So the world hates sin. And I mean, they love sin and they hate righteousness. So they will try and trap and destroy Christians both physically and spiritually. 
That's not just for the 12 or the 11 disciples. It's for us as disciples today. So Jesus is saying, disciples, pay attention. Be on the alert. Don't be caught unawares. Don't be surprised that people that love their sin hate people that don't love sin. That should not surprise you. You should expect that. So he says to the 11, you're going to be excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue. They will kick you out of fellowship. And in our world today, we don't understand that. We go, well, okay, kick me out of church, right? That's no big deal. My life goes on with or without church because church is just optional. Well, in that society, in Judaism, in that period of time, everyone belonged to the synagogue. Everyone. And if you were excommunicated, you just didn't lose your hope of heaven, which you lost that. You lost everything here on earth right now. Because religious belief and religious affiliation governed every part of their life. If you were excommunicated, you lost your family completely. They considered you dead. They considered you an enemy. They disowned you. You lost your job. No one would hire you, so you lost your livelihood. Your entire social network now shunned you. You have spiritual cooties. They treated you as an apostate, as someone who departed from the faith as their enemy and a traitor to the faith. They actually considered you dead and treated you as an entity to be attacked. And contrary to our culture, you just can't move up the road to Delano and start over because, you know, they believe the same thing up there. And, and in Jewish society, they know you, right? You can't hide in a big city. In Jewish society, if you left to another village, they would say, yeah, we heard about you. You're that apostate. And you would get shunned and, and starve there as well. So excommunication was a serious, serious issue. Now, Jesus says, an hour is coming. What's he talking about? He's talking about the events they're going to follow his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is going back to heaven. And until now, he has absorbed all the attacks of the world. The world hates Christ and his followers, but as long as Jesus is in the flesh, they're attacking him. And the disciples, they hide under his cover. They don't get it. But Jesus says, I'm going to heaven, and they're coming after you now because physically they can't come after me. And he says, those who oppose me are so blind that they will think God is pleased when they persecute Christians and even kill them. By the way, persecution is generally far more ferocious when it comes from religious zealots than it does from paganism, casual paganism. Most of the persecution of Christians today is by religious people, not by paganism, right? On March 21st, 1556, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer was burned at the stake on the orders of Bloody Mary I, Catholic Queen of England. He was considered a heretic by the Catholics and a martyr by the Protestants. He had put the English Bible in local churches and he'd drawn up the Book of Common Prayer that we even use today. Now at his burning in the church, before they took him out and burned him in the In the square, a sermon was preached by a Catholic priest named Henry Cole. And he had, quote, the job of explaining why a repentant sinner should still be burned at the stake for heresy. And they burned him anyway. Religious persecution is far more substantial than pagan persecution. Because religious people persecute believing that God approves of that and even gives you brownie points for the faith. And we have religions in this world today that you go to paradise if you die in jihad, etc., etc., etc. Now, the poster child for persecuting Christians was Paul, formerly known as Saul. He murdered Christians. He really believed that God was pleased with his persecution of Christians. He approved the murder of Stephen, remember? And the more I persecuted Christians, he said, the more I persecuted, the more I advanced in Judaism. So my peers in Judaism kept giving me brownie points, brownie points, brownie points, brownie points, the more Christians I persecuted than murdered. And he was on his way, of course, to Damascus in order to arrest followers of Jesus. When Jesus revealed to Saul that Jesus was God, 
And that's the first time Saul put that together. He thought Jesus was not God. He was the false prophet. When Jesus revealed to Saul, I am God and you are persecuting God when you persecute my people, he was converted. Now the persecutor became the persecuted. And the Jewish religious authorities, as you remember, tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He was beaten five times with 39 stripes, uh, five different times. As a matter of fact, Paul was persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, stoned by both Jews and Gentiles throughout his entire ministry. See, much persecution of Christians is done by religion. Here's the hard truth. It's a narrow truth, and our culture throws up on this. They can't manage it. All religions apart from Christianity, are ultimately controlled by Satan. You need to understand that. All religions, apart from Christianity, are ultimately controlled by Satan. And that is narrow and it is exclusive. Of course it is. Truth is always exclusive. Two plus two is always four. How narrow, you say. Why can't it be five? I decided that that stop sign really doesn't exist, so I'm going to go through it. You know, the truth of it is, truth matters. Truth matters. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. If you want to come to the Father, you come through me. Those who persecute, Jesus said, they'll persecute you because they don't know me. And they don't know my Father. Because you can't get to know the Father unless you come through the Son. Most religions claim to know God. Most religions reject Jesus Christ as son. And therefore, by definition, they cannot know God and they do not know God. Because Jesus is God in human flesh and no one but Jesus can forgive the sins that separate people from God. If you reject Jesus, you reject God and every religion apart from Christianity falls into that camp. And that's one of the reasons why religions will persecute Christians because they can't stand that narrow exclusive interpretation, and that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, when their hour comes, he's talking about the hour of the Gentiles, the hour of his death, the hour of the cross, the hour of the persecution of believers. You know, when Christ died on the cross, it didn't look like a victory. It looked like a defeat. He was crucified as a common criminal. He was executed in a public place with a great deal of humiliation. If you'd have looked at that point in time, you'd have said, Satan won. And I'm sure there was a great celebration of Satan and his followers at that point in time because they thought they'd killed him. They really thought they had killed God. In reality, though, the cross spelled the eternal doom of Satan and sin. And, of course, Christ's resurrection announced that fact to the entire universe, both spiritual universe and physical universe. Colossians 2.15 said, When he, Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he's talking about Satan and his demons, he, Christ, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I've often wondered what took place in the spiritual realm at the resurrection. Can you imagine the celebration in heaven? Beyond comprehension, the decibel count would make a jet aircraft look like a mouse squeaking. It'd have to be roaring, right? And, in, and, in, and now, by the way, hell is not populated except for the people that got stuck there due to Genesis 6 in. But the demonic host of Satan at that point in time knew that they'd bet on a loser. And it was over. And they knew it's over. Now, Jesus warns his disciples. Even though I won the victory on the cross, the world is going to hate you. And he tells them in advance. And you say, well, why did he tell them in advance? He told them so their faith wouldn't fail. See, if if he went to the cross and died, and they began to be persecuted, and he hadn't warned them, they might have concluded, you know, Jesus is not God because he can't see the future. But since he did predict in advance what was going to take place, their faith grew stronger when it actually took place. Anytime the Lord makes you a promise and you actually see it come to pass or you read a promise in Scripture, I will never leave you or forsake you, and you experience His presence when you need it, what happens to your faith? You go, God showed up big time. 
Many of you have lived long enough in the faith that if you wrote down and kept track of the ways and the means that God used to answer your prayers and kept his promises, you would be writing for the rest of your life. In some cases, the fact that you are here today is only God's grace. As a matter of fact, it is for all of us. You woke up this morning and your breathing is there. How come? Because it's his plan that you live at least until now. Right? If he said, you know, you're not going to suck air anymore. Okay, I guess it's over, right? You're in heaven. That's where it is. So he predicted in advance what was going to happen that would strengthen their faith and endure them and enable them to endure suffering without losing their faith, right? There is nothing that occurs in your life, including the rejection and persecution of the world, that God does not allow to happen to your life. And let's just make this real personal. The most painful rejection that you will experience by the world is your own family. It's your own family. It's family members that don't know Jesus, that think you're a little bit of a nutcase or a serious nutcase, or they give you that look like you're a little doddering, you know, believe in all this stuff. That rejection's tough. Jesus said it was going to come. You continue to walk faithful regardless. Verse 5. Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here's our principle. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells every Christian. Therefore, all the resources of God himself are available for those who belong to him. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells every Christian. Therefore, all the resources of God himself are available for those who belong to him. We don't really understand that. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lives inside us. Just remember that when you feel like yelling at somebody. God's looking at what's falling out of your mouth, right? And I have been convicted so many times. God lives inside that person. Good thing God doesn't believe in retribution or I'd be, I wouldn't be breathing his air anymore, you know? Jesus said, none of you asks me where I'm going. You can almost hear the heartbreak in his voice. Now, earlier, Peter and Thomas had asked him where he was going, but their questions really sprang from the sorrow that he was leaving them. The disciples at this point in time are so self-absorbed with the loss of Jesus, they're not interested in where he's going. All they're interested in is, he's leaving us alone, and we're here by ourselves, right? I mean, if you, if, when you have young children and you tell them you're going out and there's going to be a babysitter, and they say, where are you going, Mom and Dad? They don't care where you're going. They just care that you're leaving them. Now, who knows? They might be secretly cheering. Well, the babysitter will give us all kinds of goodies, and you don't. Yeah, I don't know. But Jesus says he comforts their loss by promising them the Holy Spirit will come and live in them to strengthen them, teach them, guide them, etc. By the way, this is not the first time the Holy Spirit's been mentioned. In John 7, Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit's ability to give eternal life. He says the Spirit of God will bring streams of living water that will spring up inside you. In John 14, he announced that God the Father would give the disciples another helper, the Spirit of truth. And he says another, meaning another of the exact same kind. So everything that Jesus did for the disciples, the Holy Spirit would do for the disciples. By the way, Everything Jesus did for the disciples face-to-face, the Holy Spirit will do for you on steroids. John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Spirit's going to teach you everything you need to know about my life and work and ministry. I'm going to remind you of everything I said even decades later, and that will enable you to perfectly record all that in the New Testament. And in John 15... Uh, Jesus emphasizes the Holy Spirit's power to enable them to effectively witness for him. What does Acts 1.8 says? But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. When did that occur? Well, it occurred at, at, um, at Pentecost. After his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples and then he ascends into heaven. Ten days after he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. By the way, pent means five, Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes. And the disciples, they don't know any of this yet. Jesus hadn't told them when, but he says, I'm sending the Spirit. They don't know everything that that means in the slightest, which they find out in Acts 2. But they're devastated by the fact that he's leaving them, and he says something very counterintuitive. He says, you're actually going to be better off without me. It's to your advantage that I go away. Now, if you're a disciple and Jesus has been everything to you for three years and he goes, you're going to be better off with me gone. I mean, your brain has fallen out your ears. You really don't know how to process that. That seems unbelievable. Think about it. When Jesus was on earth, he was limited to a physical body, one physical body. He could only be in one place at a time. He could only talk to one person at a time. He could only heal one person at a time. If you had a need and you were living at the time of Christ, you had to go where he was. Or you had to send somebody to say, heal my servant 50 miles away, but he was limited by that body. Now contrast this with the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, lives inside every single person, and he is instantly available for you. You know what's useful about that? So useful about that? When you're driving down the street, you can be praying. You probably should be praying. <laughs> when you wake up at 2 in the morning, you probably should be praying. Matter of fact, it's a very helpful time to pray because it's quiet. Unless you live with a snorer, then you've got another reason to pray, right? <laughs> you can thank God for your small bladder that woke you up so you have an opportunity to pray. You think that's funny. I think sometimes the Lord wakes us up in some very you know, ordinary ways, because he says, I want to talk with you, and this is the only time you're quiet enough to listen, yeah? None of that happens by accident. I know you're getting old, but none of that happens by accident. So the Holy Spirit lives inside. If he's instantly available, he knows everything. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows our needs. He knows our thoughts. He knows our fears, and he knows our future. He's not only omniscient, he's omnipotent. He's got all power. He controls every circumstance on earth, to accomplish God's purposes in and through us. The Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to witness with such great power that Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people were saved. And Peter was the one who denied him days earlier. And you're looking at Acts 2, the sermon, and you're going, 3,000 people, that's called the Spirit convicting and bringing Christ to those people. Over the next 300 years, from the time of Christ's resurrection, about 300 AD, Christians numbered about 3 million. And by the end of the 4th century, there were 30 million Christians. About half of the Roman Empire at that point in time had been converted. Now that's spirit-powered witnessing, right? So throughout history, God's people have had God's spirit living inside them, working through them, bringing people to the Savior. So how does that work? We know that the world is under the control of Satan. How does the spirit work in the world to convert people that are under Satan's control? Verse 8. And he, the Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Here's the principle. The Holy Spirit prosecutes those who refuse to believe in Jesus, those who trust in their own righteousness, and those who do not believe that God will judge them for their sins. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit prosecutes those, one, who refuse to believe in Jesus, Two, those who trust in their own righteousness. And three, those who do not believe that God will judge them for their sins. Now this Greek word convict means far more than just, well, I, I'm convicted that I ate too much dessert last night. I get this bad feeling. It is way more than that. It has a legal meaning. It has a judicial meaning. It means to prosecute. It means to indict by evidence. It means to prove guilty in a court of law. It means, quote, the judicial act of conviction of a crime in a court of law with the intention of sentencing the criminal for punishment. 
It means, spiritually, to bring someone to an inescapable sense of personal guilt before God. The Greek word for convict occurs 18 times in the New Testament, and it always has to do with showing someone their sin and calling them to repent from their sin, to turn away from it, and turn to Jesus. Now, God's ultimate prosecuting attorney was Jesus. God had prosecuting attorneys throughout the Old Testament. They're called prophets, right? They brought the word of God and said, turn away from your sin. God has holy standards. You're not living up to them. But Christ was Jesus, was God's ultimate prosecuting attorney. John 8, 23 says, he's talking to the Jewish religious leader. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Here comes the indictment, verse 24. Therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That means you are going to hell. You are going to be separated from God for all eternity unless you believe that I am the Christ. John 8, 44. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders, and he's getting sharper. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. You don't belong to God. You belong to your father, the devil. Now, when Jesus went back to heaven, who became God's primary prosecutor? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit became God's prosecutor. Now, the Holy Spirit, of course, came to the church, not to the world. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to the world. The Holy Spirit lives inside the church works inside through the church in the body of Christ. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, Just as the Son of God had to have a body in order to do his work on earth, so the Spirit of God needs a body to accomplish his ministries, and his body is the church. So the Holy Spirit is a spirit, but he works through you, through your body. You become his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears, his mouth, etc., etc., so the Holy Spirit prosecutes the unsaved world, brings charges against them through his word. And you say, well, how does the world hear his word? Through you. The followers of Jesus bring the word of God. That's why we go make disciples, right? We're bringing God's word to the lost and telling them they need to repent. And the Holy Spirit works through us to accomplish that goal. And he does it in three arenas. Number one, sin. He says, concerning sin because they do not believe. Now, God commands people throughout the Bible what? Be holy because I am holy. Be morally perfect because I am morally perfect. And of course, you say, well, how does that measure? Well, it gives us the Ten Commandments. And it was given to demonstrate God's holy standard. Now, God's word measures everybody's behavior against God's standard. And then he shows the evidence that they all fall short of that target, right? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. God's word reveals the target, perfect moral righteousness. And one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to make sinners understand their guilt before God and their need for a Savior. So the Holy Spirit is God's prosecutor. You and I are his witnesses, and the unsaved are the guilty that the Holy Spirit is prosecuting. The Holy Spirit prosecutes the sinner's conscience. They reveal their wrongdoing before God and their need for a Savior. And you go, well, that sounds pretty mean. It's actually very, very gracious. If God did not prosecute you and bring conviction of your sin to you years ago, you would not be here. You would still be believing Satan's lie that you were okay. And you would believe it all the way to the white throne judgment. And it's too late to do anything about it. God's prosecution through the Holy Spirit is an act of mercy. It's an act of love. You wouldn't let somebody drink poison and say, well, you know, everybody chooses. You would say, don't drink that. It's going to kill you. You're going to die because you love them. It's an act of love. He says, turn away from your sin. Receive Christ for salvation. John 3, 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're all sinners without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. We're on a one-way ticket to you know where, and it ain't heaven because we were born in sin. See, let me try and explain this. Everyone has sinned, and sin creates a debt. A debt, and that debt must be paid. Let me give you an example. If someone harms you, they owe you, right? If they harm you, they owe you. Let's say they were driving under the influence, and they hit your car, and your child's now in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. Now that's real harm, right? Now all debt must be paid. All debt is paid. Either they pay for their wrongdoing, or you pay for their wrongdoing, right? Debt is always paid. Depends on who's going to do the pain. Let's say they get to trial and the judge sentences them to a lengthy prison term and the insurance company gives you a very large settlement. It means they have paid off the debt they owe you. And I can hear some of you say, they can never pay the debt for putting my child in a wheelchair the rest of my life. They owe me forever. Be careful. God can say the same thing to you. You can never pay the debt. You will owe me forever in all eternity, and that's how you're going to pay for it. However, let's suppose they don't go to jail. You don't get a settlement, and you forgive them anyway. It says now, you've paid the debt for them. Forgive means to dismiss the charges against someone. It means to cancel the penalty someone rightfully owes you. It says you accept the pain that they inflicted on you, and you give up all claims for retribution, justice, all claims to make them suffer, all claims to enforce justice. You release all that. And you say, well, I'm really glad God does that for me, but I'm not so interested in doing that for them. Well, he commands us to do that. Let's say you loan somebody money, and they don't pay you back. Now, if you loan a child money, you don't expect it to pay you back, right? That's a gift. Stop lying to yourself if you think it's a loan, it's a gift, right? <laughs> if you loan somebody money, and, they ex and you expect it to pay you back, and they don't pay you back, and you forgive the debt, it means the debt is zero. Who paid the debt? You did, because you forgave it. If someone gossips about you and harms your reputation, and you forgive them, it means that you live with the consequences of a tarnished reputation. It means that you don't gossip about them, you don't plot for ways to get even, you don't plan revenge in your mind, you don't every time you think of them, right? Forgiveness means release. Now, our sin against God creates a debt we owe God. God says that our sin, our treason, our revolt against the rightful king of heaven, the perfect king of the universe, is so heinous and so evil and so wicked that the only just and fair penalty for our sin is to be eternally separated from him forever in hell. That is just because our sin is that serious. Now, we don't think that. We think our sin is eh, a little piccadillo here. God says it's so serious, worthy of eternal separation. So you can either pay for your own wrongdoing or God can pay for your wrongdoing. Now, God sent Jesus to pay the debt we owe God by dying on the cross on our place. And this payment satisfied God's just law that all sin must be paid for. When you accept Christ's payment for your sin, you're saying, I'm willing to accept that payment so that God can forgive me. And if you refuse to accept Christ's payments, God says it means you choose to pay the sin debt yourself. And God will let you pay the sin debt yourself. It'll break his heart because he's not willing and he should perish, but he's willing to let you do that. He gives you free will. So what sin are we talking about here? The sin that's that's the Spirit convicts of is the sin of unbelief. The sin of refusing to believe despite all evidence that Jesus is God, the Savior of the world. By the way, there is no sin that is not forgivable except 
the sin of refusing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, who came to pay for your sin debt. Because the only solution God has for your sin is either He pays for it, and if you refuse to have Him pay for it, then the only other solution is you pay for it. But sin, debt, will be paid for. Now, while He was on earth, Jesus called people to repent. He said, be repent, right? Be saved. It was utterly interesting to me Anytime Jesus forgave somebody, you say, well, how could he forgive them? Because he knew he was going to the cross. When he forgave somebody in, in, in the three years he was ministering, he knew that he was going to pay for that sin on the cross. So forgiveness was not easy. It cost. And when you forgive someone, it's not cheap. It costs. Yes? Those of you who are forgiven, you understand. It's expensive to forgive. That's why we need the grace of God. Now, when he went back to heaven, of course, the Holy Spirit continued that role of convicting people that they are sinners and need a Savior. The second thing he convicts people of is righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Most people downplay their evil. They kind of measure their righteousness on a thermometer. You know, Satan has a righteousness of zero. God has a righteousness of 100. And I'm kind of somewhere in between but I'm better than most, and because God grades on a curve, God will accept me. So my own righteousness is good enough for God. And here's the reality. God doesn't score on a curve, just in case you wondered. God's exam is pass-fail. And what's required to pass is perfect score, 100%. No runs, no hits, no errors. No mistakes, zero sins. That's the passing score. And, of course, there's only one person in all the universe that lived a perfect life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's purpose is to shatter the human belief that our own self-righteousness can meet God's holy standard. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Let me give you a little application point. Let's suppose that around your neck is an invisible tape recorder. And it was put there when you were 18. Invisible tape recorder. And it only records one thing. The moral standards that you say other people should live up to. It only records what comes out of your mouth about the moral standards that you say they should live up to. At the end of your life, God unplugs the recorder and says, let's listen to everything you said about how other people should live. And then he looks at the actions of your life. And the truth of it is, nobody even lives up to their own standards. We don't. Let alone God's perfect standard. Human self-righteousness will not get you into heaven. We only get into heaven because Jesus took my sin on the cross and he gave me his perfect righteousness. The technical term for that is imputed. It means to credit to somebody's account. So at the cross, Jesus' perfect righteousness was put in my bank account, my spiritual bank account, and my sin was put in his spiritual bank account. So it's an accounting term, assets, liability. He gives me his perfect righteousness as an asset, and he takes my liability on him and pays for it by experiencing the wrath of God. So God punished Jesus for my sin, so now justice is done, and therefore he can accept me because he looks at me and goes, oh, you have Jesus' righteousness. Let's suppose you're bankrupt, physically. But you have a billionaire family member who gives you an unlimited debit card that's linked to their account. You don't have any money yourself, but you now are rich. Yes? Because you can access the wealth that they have. Through Christ, we access all the infinite riches of God, both now and for all eternity. The third thing the Holy Spirit will convict the world about is judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Satan deceives people into believing that God will not judge them. You and I, there's no final judgment, there's no day of accountability, and the Holy Spirit says, just as Satan was judged, those who follow Satan will be judged. If God judged the former prime minister of hell for his sins, believe me, no human being is going to escape. And there are many, many, many people that say, 
Well, I, there's no final judgment. I just decided there's not a final judgment. I said, well, you believing it doesn't make it so. Reality does not conform to your belief system. Try going through a red light sometimes, see how it works for you, right? So we know that Satan was defeated and judged at the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, he, Christ, might render him, Satan, who had the power of death, that is the devil, powerless, right? We know Satan's end, Revelation 20.10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end result of the leader of the revolt, and everyone who follows him experiences the same judgment. So the Holy Spirit says, if God judged Satan, he will judge those who follow Satan, don't believe his lie. Satan's already been judged, by the way. His verdict's been announced. When Jesus returns to earth, the sentence will be executed. He'll be thrown in the lake of fire. So when a sinner is under the Holy Spirit's conviction, they will, one, they'll see their unbelief in Jesus as the unforgivable sin and repent of it. They will realize that their self-righteousness will not reconcile them to God because it's insufficient. And third, they will understand they're under condemnation because they followed the enemy in rebellion against God. So the whole point of the Spirit convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment is love. He wants people to turn from their sin and turn to him and be saved. Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Here's the principle. The Holy Spirit progressively teaches us all the spiritual truth God wants us to know. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit progressively teaches us all the spiritual truth God wants us to know. Now, the disciples have much to learn, but they're already overwhelmed. Jesus didn't tell them everything. He gave them what they need to know when they need to know it, right? The Holy Spirit does the same thing today. He tells us what we need to know when we need to know it. So when you pray, God, blah, 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 he knows what you need to know, right? He knows what answer you need. Yes, no, wait, whatever it happens to be. Those of you who have raised children or nieces or nephews, you don't tell your five-year-old everything they want to know. You tell them what's appropriate for them to know. The Holy Spirit does the same thing. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever so that we observe all the words of this covenant. So you'll notice in verse 13, John uses the pronoun he or his. You can underline that in your Bible. Seven times. Seven times in one verse, he or his. He's emphasizing the Holy Spirit's not a force, it's a person with intellect, emotions, wills. He thinks, guides, teaches, discloses. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is a person, and he's going to guide you into all the truth. Now, he's not talking about, he's going to teach you math, science, or how to get a PhD. He says, the truth means all the spiritual truth you need in order to live a godly life. Jesus, of course, is the truth, and the spirit of truth guides us into everything we need to know about Jesus God's Son, godly living, and spiritual truth is found where? Here. Here in God's Word. The Holy Spirit will open your mind to understand what God says in the Bible so you can understand it. You cannot understand it without the Holy Spirit. That's why you should ask for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes. Why? That I may see wonderful things in your law. 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we might know, comprehend, understand, follow the things freely given to us by God. When you read the Bible, you're thinking God's thoughts after him. You know what God thinks because he wrote it down. That is amazing when you think about it. He says, I'm going to disclose to you what's to come. He's talking about what's going to follow after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, second coming, the church, the Great Commission, etc. Verse 14. He will glorify, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Christ, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Here's the principle. 
The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus by enabling us to understand, quote, the unfathomable riches of Christ, unquote, that are recorded in the Bible. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus by enabling us to understand the unfathomable riches of Christ that are recorded in the Bible. When you look at verse 14 and 15, who do you see present in those two verses? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity are all working together in perfect unity to accomplish God's purposes. The final revelation of God is in Christ. If you want to know what God is like, you don't have to guess and you can't make it up. Study and look at the life of Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind so you understand Him. The central aim of the Holy Spirit is to exalt the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the floodlights that illuminates Jesus Christ without calling attention to himself. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is going to take the revelation of the Father through me, the Son, and unfold it for you, the followers of Jesus, so you can understand it, so you can comprehend it, so that you can follow it. Now, part of that was fulfilled when the Spirit brought to their memory everything that Jesus had said. I mean, I want you to think about this. The Gospel of John was written about 90 A.D., Christ ascended about 33 AD. We're talking almost six decades later after the events, and you go, I can't remember what you told me yesterday. How in the world could John or Peter or all the apostles remember what Jesus said? The Holy Spirit is promised. He will bring to your memory everything I said so that you can record it in the New Testament. That's the point. And today, God, the Holy Spirit, works in us to do what? Exalt Jesus, the same goal. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, which we have, as we proclaim it, and uses the sword of the Spirit to do what? Convict people of sin so that they will repent so that they will come to the Savior and spend forever with, it, with him in heaven as opposed to be separated from him. So he is the one who opens our eyes and illuminates our minds to understand God's word. So we'll love Jesus and live in such a way that we draw others to him. So this chapter, the first part of this, is really all about the Holy Spirit. The reality is we really have understudied and un, we, we, we do not fully understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is probably the most neglected member of the Trinity, I would say. So I encourage you, if you want to understand what the Spirit is and how the Spirit works, John 14, John 15, John 16, these three chapters speak more about the Spirit's person and work than almost any of the other places in Scripture. So I commend that to you as a serious uh, point of study if you want to find out what God living in you should be producing and does produce. I'm very much of the belief, biblical belief, that the Spirit works in us and through us, and we are unaware of about 90% of it. Most of the time, we're unaware of it. I've had people come up to me and said, you said something 15 years ago, blah, 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 changed my life. I have no idea what I said. No memory at all. It wasn't important what I said. What's important is the Holy Spirit took those words and pierced their heart with it and changed their life. So I'm going to encourage you to stay faithful because 99% of what we do, we can't see the results of. We'll see it when we get to heaven. But until then, trust the Holy Spirit to take your faithfulness and accomplish His purposes in it. So let's summarize, and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. First principle. When Jesus' promises come to pass, we recognize his sovereignty. That means his lordship, his control, and our faith in him is strengthened. I'm going to only make one side comment on this. Most of the time, you will trust God's promises when you're in trouble. Because you can't trust anything else. Right? And my back was really sore this morning at 2 a.m. It's a really good time to pray. You know, so the Lord used back pain to wake me up. 
He's going to accomplish his purposes. The point is, when you pray, you don't know what he's going to do. You're not supposed to know. You simply lay it before the Lord and give it to him and let him deal with it. He's sovereign. Number two, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells every Christian. Therefore, underline this, all the resources of God himself are available to those who belong to him. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. What are you asking God for? I'm convinced we're asking for way too small stuff. We're asking for tiny stuff. Oh God, can you please fix yada, yada, yada? His vision for your life is so much bigger than that, it is not even... Ask! When in doubt, ask! We have a father who says, come to me, I've got the infinite resources of heaven available to you. Ask, I delight to show you and give you. When you were a parent and your three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old came to you and says, Papa, Mama, blah, 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 did it not delight you to meet their requests? Did it not? How much more your heavenly Father? Number three, the Holy Spirit prosecutes those who refuse to believe in Jesus, those who trust in their own righteousness, and those who do not believe that God will judge them for their sins. If he doesn't prosecute, people don't come to faith. Because they don't believe, number one, their sin's bad enough. They believe their self-righteousness is good enough. They don't believe God's going to judge them anyway. They won't come to faith. So pray that the Holy Spirit goes before you and your family and friends that you love, and he prosecutes their conscience and opens their heart so that when you bring the gospel to them, their hearing aid works and they'll hear it. Number four, the Holy Spirit progressively teaches us all the spiritual truth that God wants us to know. As you read the Word of God every day, God has truth for you. He has treasure for you. This is a treasure chest, and truth is the treasure that shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. He progressively teaches us, but you have to open the book. And number five, the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus by enabling us to understand the unfathomable riches of Christ that are recorded in the Bible. It really is his story. It's all about him. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.